The witch-burning scene from Monty Python is one of the most funny scenes in movie history, in my personal opinion. As a matter of fact, I was actually partially tempted to play that clip as my introduction, but I just decided uh, they're not ready for that. It's going to make them panic. They're going to think I'm trying to turn them into a secret sensitive church. I'm not going to do that. But I almost played a movie clip, believe it or not. It's a really, really funny scene. If you haven't seen the movie Monty Python, there's a comedic scene in it uh, that takes place where these medieval peasants in this small medieval village want to take this woman that they don't like and accuse her of being a witch so that they can burn her. And so they dress her up like a witch, and it's obviously fake. They put a little, like, oil can on the top of her head and call it a pointy hat, and they put this rope, this obviously big fake pointy nose around her nose, and then they try to bring her to the magistrate saying, look, she's clearly a witch, uh, we need to burn her. And it's, it's, it sounds grotesque, but in the, in the comedy movie, it's, it's quite funny. However, the, the humor of that scene, it reminds me of just how sanitized... Sorcery and witchcraft has become in our culture. When we think of witchcraft, we think of Monty Python skits. Or maybe we think of some small woman with a green face paint flying around on a broom. Or we think of little British kids flying around on brooms. Or a wizard leading a group of hobbits to slay a dragon. Some maybe think of like the Salem witch trials and the Puritans, and it gives them this really outdated, slightly inaccurate view of the Puritans. But the fact remains that witchcraft is not at all like it's portrayed in movies. There is true witchcraft, and it is nothing like the sanitized versions that our children and that even we partake in. It is real, and it's dangerous. Yet Saul... In sinful desperation, turns to sorcery, turns to witchcraft, in hopes that it can fix his problems. Let us see that. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. Although this is not a long chapter, we're still going to read it in parts just to make sure we are following the narrative And then we will preach on it. 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3. Let's first just read through verse 6. 3 through 6. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Let us stop there. Saul's total rejection by God is represented in these different ways that God is refusing to speak to him. God has completely rejected Saul, and we see that in the three different ways that God is being silent. We're told that God refuses to speak to him through dreams. Dreams in the Old Testament was the common way for God to reveal himself to kings, to people in authority. So by not speaking to him in dreams, we see symbolically that God has rejected him as king. He also was not, God was not speaking to him through the Urim. 
God is not, and that's how the priesthood would speak to the people. So God has taken the kingship from him. He's taking the priesthood from him. And then lastly, there are no prophets. He is not hearing any prophecy. God has taken the prophets from him. This is what we call the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus in the New Testament fulfills the threefold office. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. But Saul has lost the threefold office and it has been transplanted to David. Saul, by the way, deserved this. He disobeyed the prophet. He killed all of the priests. And now he is no longer legitimately king. So there is no way for God to speak to this man. So Saul doesn't know what to do. He sees the Philistine army. He's afraid. It's been prophesied to him already that he's going to die soon. He thinks maybe this is my end. He doesn't want to see that end. And so let's see what Saul decides to do in the midst of a silent God. Verses 7 through 10. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and he went with two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Let's stop there. Saul's wickedness is on full display in this passage. Full display in this chapter. It, better than almost anything we've read so far, reveals the depths that Saul has sunk. For he has both, he has not only officially turned to witchcraft, but he's done so hypocritically. He's the one, in accordance with the law of Moses, who put out the witches. He put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, which is what the law of Moses commanded him to do. And it was punishable by death, which is what the law of Moses commanded him to do. And now he, here he is, a hypocrite sneaking around at night, disguising himself, and seeking out a witch. This really is truly, truly wicked. Witchcraft is absolutely condemned all throughout the Old Testament under its many names. A medium and a necromancer are essentially the same thing. A medium is a person who communicates with dead spirits, and a necromancer is a person who not only communicates with dead spirits, but is claimed to be able to raise them, to somehow raise them. Mediums, necromancers, sometimes these go under the title of divinization, which is why in the ESV, Saul told the woman to divine for him because they're claiming supernatural power. Mediums, necromancers, diviners, these are all forms of witchcraft, forms of sorcery, and the Old Testament condemns them with capital punishment regularly throughout. This is a serious, serious sin and a serious, serious crime. That Saul is committing. However, it's important for us to notice something. It appears that Saul is not the only person in Israel who has this impulse to consult with witches. Now, why do I say that? Because even though Saul long ago banned sorcery from the land and even made it punishable by death, apparently there's still enough of a market in Israel that these sorcerers were willing to stick around. Uh, Israel had sort of a black market for necromancy. 
And there was such high demand, such profitable high demand, that these people were willing to risk their lives to stay in Israel and continue their practice. As a matter of fact, don't you find it interesting? I I don't want to read too much into this because sometimes narratives will skip over passages of time if they don't think it's important. But I get the impression that it it wasn't hard for Saul's servants to find him a, a necromancer. I get the impression that it was, they probably already had a lead. <laughs> yeah, we know where they are. We, we know of that famous one in Endor. I believe there was a high demand for necromancy. It was a prominent service offered in Israel. And so this just reveals how much leadership matters. As Saul continues to decline and become a sinful and wicked ruler, his people follow suit. Israel is a land of idolatry. Saul is not the only person seeking out a mediator. He has to go hide and do it at night and chase it underground. But it is present. And as a side note, can I just say, this is a side note, but I still think this is important. To me, this text just, it just reminds me of how silly pro-abortion rhetoric can be. How often do you hear people say things like, well, you know, if you make abortion illegal, it's just going to go underground. It's just going to happen in the back alleys and it's not going to be safe and people are going to get sick and it's, 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 really, it's really messy if we move it into the back alleys so we should just legalize it and try to keep it safe. Now it is true that in our land abortion is such a, has such a high demand that were we to legalize it and legalize it, make it illegal the way we should, capital punishment, that, that's, that's how you treat murder in this country is capital punishment. That's how you should be according to the law of God. So it should be a capital crime to murder a child and even if we did that, it wouldn't stop people. They, they would still do it. It would go underground and it would go into the back alleys. But here's the question I have. So what? You know, we have pretty strict drunk driving laws in this country. Does it seem to stop very many people? So should we just, let's make drunk driving legal and try to, try to make it safer. Let's just make it legal and then try to regulate it so that we don't have as much of it is apparently the logic here. It's silly. But let me just ask you this. Do you get the impression from this text that God thinks, well, you know what? Apparently the, witch, the witches are still going to be witches. So let's just ignore what I wrote in the Law of Moses and let's just try to legalize and, and regulate witchcraft. No. Witchcraft was happening underground at night in the dark places because that's where sin belongs. Sin belongs underground. Abortion shouldn't be happening. But if an abortion is going to happen, it belongs in the back alley. That's exactly where it should take place because that's where crimes and murder always take place. Good riddance. Send sin underground. Send it into the dark. That's where it belongs. And we see how wicked it is. The only way for Saul to engage in this behavior is to crawl around at night like a cockroach. That's where sin belongs because it hates the light. So I say, amen, shove murder into the back alleys. Shove it underground. We cannot underestimate the wickedness of what Saul is doing here. God made this a capital crime. And that's why he's scurrying around at night pretending to be a stranger. Let's see how this turns out for him then. Look at verse 11. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, 
I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. And because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Let us stop there. The witch summons Samuel, but Samuel provides no hope for Saul. He affirms that God's word has not changed and that Saul's day of reckoning is coming. Now, the big question here is whether or not the witch really brought Samuel back from the dead. That's what theologians debate in this text. Is this really Samuel? There are many theologians, great theologians, who have argued it's not, that it's a demon in disguise, that it's just a demon pretending to be Samuel. And while that is possible, I don't actually think that's the way we should read this text. I believe that this really is the spirit of Samuel, and we should read it as if it really is the spirit of Samuel. I won't spend too much time working through all of the arguments, but I would like to give a few reasons why I think you should interpret this as truly being Samuel. First, the text just plainly calls him Samuel, and even our objective narrator never intervenes and says, by the way, I know Saul thought this was Samuel, and I know the sorcerer thought this was Samuel, but that's not Samuel, right? We have an objective a voice in whoever wrote the text, and the objective narrator continues to call him Samuel, right? So the text doesn't ever indicate explicitly that it's not Samuel or that it's a false one. And certainly the fact that she describes him as a god should not be a fear to you. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. And all throughout the Old Testament, the word Elohim is used to describe in, in a variety of ways. Yes, it is sometimes used of Yahweh, the Lord our God. But it's also very often used of angels and demons. And it's sometimes even used of earthly princes and rulers and kings. Anyone who has any kind of great power or great authority can be referred to as an Elohim or a God with a small g. It happens in the Old Testament all the time. So all she is doing is this spirit that she has summoned is coming with an authority that she's not used to. This is a great man of great authority. This is an Elohim. A God has come from the dead here. And that is no reason to think it's a demon because men are called Elohim in Scripture as well. She sees his prophetic authority and she also notices his prophetic robe. That is why the appearance is what confirms for Saul this really is Samuel. He's wearing his prophetic robe. Additionally, uh, one of the main fears of this text is people are just extremely uncomfortable with believing that a human being, or more likely a demon working with a human being, has resurrection power. The New Testament seems to indicate that this is a unique power of God and God alone, and I would agree with that. We do not have to read this as a true resurrection. It's not. 
This is not the kind of resurrection that you and I are going to experience on the last day. This is not the kind of resurrection that the disciples experienced with Jesus. This truly is an apparition, a spirit, a ghost. She has not resurrected Samuel, but she has brought his spirit up. That is not a true resurrection. And so it's not something we need to be too uncomfortable attributing to demonic power. But here's what I think is perhaps the strongest indication that this really is Samuel. I think the strongest indication is the medium's response to him. Isn't it interesting? We have this uh, allegedly uh, a pretty experienced sorcerer just doing her thing, but for some reason she's suddenly terrified. She's terrified of what is happening here. Somehow, when she sees Samuel, it scares her and surprises her. As a matter of fact, because she is so, what happened was so unexpected, it revealed something to her about her stranger. She said, why did I actually get the real Samuel? There must be an important person summoning Samuel that I actually got the real thing. And the only person I can think of that wants to talk to Samuel would be the king. She is so shocked and scared and surprised that she actually got Samuel that it tells her this must be Saul. Why else is this happening? By the way, we even have a hint, as you'll see, that I think at some point she actually fled in terror because the text is going to imply that she has to come back into the room and find a scared Saul. She merely did her job. She allegedly did what she always does, and yet it brought terror and confusion upon her. I think the only explanation for these details is that the witch is used to the fake. That's what she's used to. She's used to bringing up what appears to her, her, her patrons as whoever it is that they want, but it's actually a demon. She's used to demonic activity, and this time she got the real thing. She's used to what is fake, but this is authentic. So this is not a sleight of hand trick. This is a person, this medium, who her partnership with demons gives her an actual supernatural ability, but this is not business as usual for her. Normally, people come and they pay her and she's in control of the situation. But on this strange occasion, she's not in control. She is not in control of this situation. Standard protocol has been broken. Now, this brings up an important reminder for us about witchcraft. If what I'm saying is true, then this is an important reminder that the Bible condemns divinization because it's evil, not because it doesn't work. The Bible does not condemn witchcraft because it's fake. To the contrary, it's because it's real. Granted, it's not real in the sense that it looks like what we're accustomed to, to it looking like. It's not real the way it's portrayed in the movies. That's fake. That's not real. But there is real demonic power at work in the cultish practices throughout our world. It's real. They're doing supernatural things. And this is why it's never been permissible for Christians to participate in the modern forms of witchcraft that still exist in our culture. This includes things like astrology, tarot cards, Ouija boards, palm reading, or any other attempt to communicate with the dead or to communicate with demons. This is off limits to us because it's real and it's dangerous. So let's see how Saul responds to the bad news. Verse 20. 
Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to you and what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had, f- had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Saul ends his life with a Last Supper of sorts. Apparently here in America, when a death row inmate is about to be executed, uh, I don't know for sure if this is true, but I've heard it so much, I, I think it probably is. They're allowed to get one final meal of their choice. Before their execution, they get to pick and eat whatever they want to eat. And that is the mercy that the witch is giving to Saul in this text. Uh, he's going to die, so he's going to get his final meal. Saul had been fasting because we saw earlier in the book of 1 Samuel that he believed for some reason that fasting before war would make God give him favor. So he doesn't want to lose the battle, so he's going to keep fasting, but he clearly hasn't accepted that there's nothing he can do about the battle anymore. Servants convince him of this, so he finally decides to eat the slaughtered, fattened calf. But in God's providence, the witch's act of mercy ends up foreshadowing God's prophecy. She kills a fattened calf, which is a symbol used throughout Scripture of judgment. For example, James chapter 5 picks up on this when James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This idea of the calf being fattened for slaughter is this idea of storing up wrath for judgment. So why does the text go out of its way to tell us so specifically what Saul ate? Why did we need to know that she slaughtered a fattened calf and fed it to him? You want to know why? Because he's the fattened calf. And for many, many chapters throughout 1 Samuel, he has been fattening himself for this day of slaughter. Now those are harrowing words. I I certainly don't want any of us in this room... To ever find ourselves in a position where we are fattening ourselves for a day of slaughter. How can we avoid this end? How can we avoid sinking to the same depth of depravity to which Saul has sunk? Well, let us dissect in the circumstances and the behavior of 1 Samuel 28 so that we can determine how we can prevent ourselves from being slaughtered like Saul. I have found four important ways in this text to keep you from sharing in Saul's fate. The first one can be found in verses 15 through 17. The first step that you need to take, the first step you need to take is to reconcile with God. You need to be reconciled to God. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You want to know what's the heart and soul of all of Saul's problems? All of Saul's problems all ultimately boil down to the fact that Saul is far from God. That God has turned his face from Saul. Saul and God are enemies. There's no life application, no self-help book, no life practices or strategies. Nothing can fix your problems outside of being reconciled with God. If you are an enemy of God, there is no self-help book in America that can help you. The most important thing for any human being to do is to become a friend of God. To be reconciled from God until we turn to Christ by faith, believing that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. Until we repent and believe and are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, everything else is vanity. Nothing else matters until that happens. Paul makes this crystal clear. We don't have to turn there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. A famous passage of scripture where he talks about how in Christ We are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. And he therefore turns and he literally begs and he pleads, I beg you, be reconciled to God. For it is God making his appeal to us that it is God who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The only way to be reconciled to God, to turn from God as your enemy to your friend, is found by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And until you do that, nothing else matters. First step to avoid an end like Saul's, be reconciled to God. Second step, once you have reconciled with God, then you need to consult his word. You need to develop a pattern, a lifestyle of regularly consulting his word. Look at verse 15 with me. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. The major theme of this chapter is having to deal and imagine the horrible circumstances of living under a silent God. Is there anything more terrifying than a God who will not speak? Of being famished, being hungry, being thirsty from a word from God and hearing nothing. Saul feels the weight of this when God refuses to speak to him. And even then, when Saul turns to sin in in, in the presence of a silent God, he still, even though he's going to witchcraft, he's going to sorcery, he's still not looking for their word. He's just using them as a means to an end to get God's word. He still, who does he want to hear from? The medium? No, the prophet. The medium is just a means to an end for Saul because he knows, I need to hear not from the witch, not from my second in command. I need to hear from God. 
Isn't it ironic, just by the way, how even after Samuel's death, he continues to remain the most sure word in all of Israel? God's word is so effectual, so powerful, that even death to the prophet didn't stop the prophetic word from finding a superior place over all of the false prophets and false wisdom of men. God's word is an unconquerable, sure foundation more powerful than any two-edged sword. One commentator writing on this verse, I love the poetic way he put it. He said this, Neither cavern nor tomb, neither space nor time limits the effectiveness of God's word. And Saul is desperate for this powerful, effectual word. But the problem for Saul is that he has already ignored and despised God's word for his entire reign. And so now God has taken it from him and he finally sees experientially how terrible it is to have no direction from God. But the good news for us is that we don't rely on dreams. We don't consult Urims or Thummims or priests. We have a complete and sufficient word from God every moment of the day at our fingertips. Keep your marker here. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've probably quoted this verse from the pulpit more than any other verse, and that probably won't change. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17. This is the testimony to you today that God is never silent. You might not listen, but he is never silent to you. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures which are at your fingertips are sufficient to complete your Christian life. They make you complete. You have the fullness. You have everything God has wanted to say to you in his inspired, preserved scriptures. They're sufficient for your life and for godliness, for knowing God and obeying his commandments. Praise be to God. He is never silent. He's never silent. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 28 for our third way to avoid Saul's doom. First, you must reconcile with God. Then you must consult his word. The third step is you need to rely on his spirit. You need to rely on his spirit. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. What Saul does in these verses is he demonstrates a natural tendency, which I don't mean to be offensive, but it's latent in all of us. We all have this natural tendency to look for answers or for healing in 
places that we shouldn't whenever we think God is silent. Sometimes we feel that God is silent, that he's not helping us, and so we will then turn to other things that are not God to find the help or the answers we need. That's what Saul's done, but I would submit to you, even though it may not happen by going to the witch at Endor, people do this all the time. One of the most obvious ways I see this is the way drugs are used in our culture. How often do people retreat to drugs and alcohol to heal emotional afflictions like anxiety or stress or sadness? By the way, this is essentially equivalent to turning to witchcraft. It's almost the same thing. Let me just briefly explain my thoughts on this. Do you know where our Greek word pharmacy comes from? You go to a pharmacy and you buy drugs. You go to the pharmacy. Do you know where the Greek word pharmacy comes from? It comes from a Greek word, pharmakeia. And guess how the Greek word pharmakeia is translated in your Bibles? It's in your Bibles a lot. And guess how it's translated? Sorcery or witchcraft. Isn't that interesting? And I submit to you, we can actually put the pieces together and we can kind of see how this word develops over time because there's a relationship here. There is a rough resemblance to drug use, to drugs and witches' potions, right? A drug is very much like a potion. Some smart person takes a dangerous combination of different elements and mixes them together in something that if you take it will alter your mind and make your life better. Doesn't that kind of sound, doesn't that kind of sound like witchcraft? Now, let me be very, very clear. I am not saying that all drugs all the time are always sinful or always witchcraft. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to get us to see how we can see this kind of loose connection as to how our word for sorcery became our word for drugs. We see this loosely connected here that when we turn to drugs and alcohol to fix our lives, what we're essentially doing is seeking a witch and asking for a potion. By the way, I would argue to you that this is why you as a Christian really have no business recreationally partaking in mind-enhancing drugs or getting drunk. It's sinful, but it's especially dangerous when you use it as a form of therapy. In case you're ever tempted to do this, let me just remind you, by the way, that it doesn't work in the long run. It doesn't actually help. And we see this example with Saul. Did going to the witch make Saul's life better? Did it fix his problems? He got, he got what he wanted. He got Samuel. Did it help? I would argue it exacerbated the problem. Saul, here's how Saul could have ended his life on earth. He sees the Philistines gather in battle, and he could have gone out on a note of courage and bravery and done his job. Do you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel? Why was Saul made king against God's wishes in the first place? Because he was a tall, strong, handsome man who can defend us from our enemies. If there's one job that Saul cannot fail to do, it's fight. He needs to fight. And he could have gone out with a fool's hope. Here's the army. I'm going to meet them in battle. And if I perish, I died in courage. And maybe, just maybe, God will show me mercy. He could have gone out with hope and with courage. That's not a horrible way to go out. But what does he do? 
He turns to drugs. He turns to potions. He turns to magic. He turns to sorcery. And now, not only has his fate not changed, he's going to die, and Israel's going to be taken away, and his kids are going to die. And on top of all of that, he's now filled with dread, anxiety, fear, depression, and humiliation. It didn't help him. I know sometimes drugs and alcohol seem like they help, but I promise you they don't. They will not make your life better. In other words, let me put this into a little bit more of a broad application. We just got done talking about how we have a sufficient word from God, but it was not God's intention in Scripture to give us revelation about every detail of our lives. That was not His intention. There are answers to questions that you have that have simply not been revealed to us. And it's in these moments, who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I move? What church should I go to? These things that are not revealed to you or when you're hurting and you're in pain and you pray and it doesn't help and you read and it doesn't help. There are times where God feels silent. He feels distant. You feel alone like Saul. And we want more from God. And when in those situations we want more from him and we don't get it, we're tempted then to turn to other things. And I would submit to you that this demonstrates a lack of faith in God's spirit. We are to search God's word diligently for the guidelines that we need to make decisions in our life. But when the answer is not clear, what do we do? We pray, we seek wisdom, and we make decisions trusting the Holy Spirit to guide our steps, to heal our hearts, to accomplish whatever it is that we need. So please, don't ever give in to the temptation to turn to false religions or false practices or the passions of the flesh when you think God is silent. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Seek wisdom through prayer and fasting and patience, long-suffering. Trust the Spirit of God. Rely on His Spirit. Let's very quickly do our fourth point. How to avoid Saul's end. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to consult His Word. You need to rely on His Spirit. And last, you need to commune with His saints. He need to be in the presence of God's people. The final danger which led to Saul's downfall was his total isolation. Saul has no friends. He has servants. He has a witch under his employment. He has employees. He doesn't have friends. He pushed Samuel away, who's now dead. He drove David out. He drove his son out. He drove his daughter out. He killed his priests. He has backed himself into a corner of total isolation. And isolation is a dangerous place to be. God has blessed us with churches to avoid becoming sheep wandering in the wilderness without flock, without shepherds. This is why in our creed we confess the one holy Catholic church, the communion of the saints. That's how important it is. It made it into the creed. Baptism didn't even make it into that creed. Predestination didn't make it into that creed. You know what made it in that creed? Going to church. Spending time with Christians outside of church, the communion of the saints, this is vital to our relationship with God and to enduring and running the race. It is a blessing to have the people of God to surround us, encourage us, correct us, rebuke us, and counsel us. So don't isolate yourself from God's people. Let's end on that note from Hebrews 3. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. 
This is what the author of Hebrews says. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end.